1: Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Medicine, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Rachel Pagonis, and I'm your host for this episode. Today, I'm speaking with Lisa Jean Moore about her new book, Our Transgenic Future, Spider-Goats, Genetic Modification, and the Will to Change Nature, published by New York University Press this month, July 2022. Lisa Jean Moore is a feminist medical sociologist and SUNY Distinguished Professor at Purchase College, State University of New York. She's also the author of Sperm Counts, Overcome by Man's Most Precious Fluid, and Catch and Release, The Enduring Yet Vulnerable Horseshoe Crab. She's co-author of Missing Bodies, The Politics of Visibility, and Buzz, Urban Beekeeping and the Power of the Bee, as well as co-editor of the collection, The Body Reader. Uh, So Lisa Jean, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you so much. I'm really delighted to be here.
1: Well, I'm really excited to have you um, speaking to us about your fascinating book. And would you begin by telling us a bit about your background and how you got interested in transgenic goats? Because I think most of us have never heard of them.
0: Sure, yeah. So, um, I'm trained as a medical sociologist and I have a degree in epidemiology, so I spend time studying human vulnerability to diseases and the ways in which their bodies are medically interesting and useful. And I sort of branched out a few years ago to look at how animals are used to enhance or enable human health. So I looked at honeybees and their role in pollination and also AP therapy. I looked at horseshoe crabs and how their blood is used to create opportunities to test for endotoxin. And this led me to need a new project. And a friend of mine had mentioned this herd of goats in Utah that had been translated genetically modified to lactate spider silk. So I wrote to the principal investigator of that lab, and he invited me to come out and meet the goats and see how the lab operated. And that was the beginning of this new ethnography.
1: Wow, that's really interesting. Gives us a lot to think about. Um, Just to get a handle on things to start, what is a spider goat? And why would anyone want to combine a spider and a goat?
0: Yeah, so that is kind of an interesting question. And it's interesting to combine a vertebrate and an invertebrate. So it is unusual. I mean, there have been transgenic animals prior to the spider goat, but this one is unique because it's modifying the goat to be what's called a synth system in synthetic biology, to synthesize the protein and use the goat almost like a living factory to produce a byproduct that we want. So the goat is a vehicle by which we use um, their um, biological system to express the protein in the milk that they lactate. And the reason this is done is because the properties of spider silk are very unique. They're extremely flexible, and they're extremely strong, and it's unusual to have both these qualities in a fabric. So when it was understood that spider silk could have applications for humans, there was a need to collect enough spider silk or synthesize or make enough spider silk so that we could establish prototypes. And these particular spiders, which are called golden orb weaver spiders, are very cannibalistic and territorial, so it's difficult to raise them in captivity. And they also couldn't possibly produce enough spider silk for our purposes to bring them what's called up to scale, to be able to make enough product based on the spider silk. So the goat was identified as a system that's docile and predictable and friendly and domesticated. And it was modified by adding one extra protein into their genome so that their milk has, expresses the protein um, for the kind of spider silk we're interested in examining.
1: So I have to say, my husband is a research scientist. I spend a lot of time talking to scientists. And, you know, so I, I know some of what happens in science, but still this sounds really sci-fi to me.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think we can conjure images partially because of our popular imagination spurred by Marvel movies, etc. And imagine the goats being these kind of bleeding, maybe having sores on their body, having the milk coming out of their udders expressed as a spider web. And I mean, I've met these goats. They're very ordinary looking goats. You wouldn't know anything about them. Um, Even in their milk, you wouldn't see anything. It looks like regular white milk. So I think that we do have some existing cinematic ideas of what these goats would be like, but I am here to tell you that that's, that's in our imagination.
1: Right. They're not like Spider-Man. And I think you use this image in the book with the webs coming out of his wrists. Yeah. Um, still, I'm I'm taken by the idea of someone in the military sitting there contemplating spider webs and thinking, how can we employ these to, you know, like, like make planes hold together better?
0: Right. Right. So I think, yeah, I mean, it's really interesting and it, it does as I say in the book, it does kind of feel like a little Monty Python skit like where you have these pocket protector military guys sitting around trying to figure out, I know what we'll do. We'll, we'll have spider silk become this foundational biomechanical substance that can then become bulletproof vest and be stronger than Kevlar and catch the tail hook of planes landing on aircraft carriers and just the science of how was the silk actually originally taken from spiders to do these types of studies. Um, It does sound very almost comical in a way, but it is indeed true that the qualities of spider silk are stronger than Kevlar. It is called bio-steel. It does have these properties that occur naturally that are actually hard to replicate um, outside of the spider's own ingenuity of doing that.
1: Oh, so in one sense, it's actually making us appreciate the... Uh, I don't know how to put it, the incredible ingenuity, of it's not really the right word, of nature.
0: Yes, no, I think that's true. I think biomimicry, we do a lot through biomimicry. That's the word? Yeah. Yeah, we see how it's done, like flying. We see how animals do it, and then we work really hard. And so this is another place where we're trying to mimic. But instead of mimicking what the spider does, we sort of transgenically modified the goat to give us more of that good stuff, whatever that good stuff is, in this case, spider silk.
1: One of the really interesting things is the in the book is that um, you reflect on the book's topic uh, through the lens of your own experience and your own identity and your academic training. And one theme that recurs throughout the book is how your experience with reproduction and you have three daughters uh, influences your perception of the goats, which of course are used to produce both offspring and Milk, and reading the book, I thought it was fascinating to watch your thought process, and I wonder if you'd explain it a bit now.
0: yeah, sure. So I am a mom of three daughters who I gave birth to and who I also nursed and But I am not someone who's reproduced in the typical heteronormative. Um, way. I'm someone who's used sperm from sperm banks and from donor friends to do at-home insemination, almost like my own little lab experiment, if you will, to reproduce. And I've used what would be called science, as well as the constructed nature of all things, to become a different type of family, maybe what we would call a queer family, and see science as liberatory into producing new futures and new possibilities, really at the micro level in my very own life. And I think this gives me a particular vantage point when looking at the modification of anything outside of what's the quote unquote natural, instead of just seeing it as scary or nefarious or bad, seeing it as have potential for liberation or possibility. Simultaneous to that, I'm also a woman who's experiencing menopause and seeing my worth and value different because of my reproductive capacities. And the goats and the spiders are seen as valuable to humans when they are able to reproduce. And in the case of the spider, they die after they reproduce, if you think of Charlotte's Web. (laughs) And in the case of the goats, the fact that they maybe won't be able to reproduce or they can't produce enough spider silk, their use is seen as kind of yearning or yawning towards obsolescence. And so I also muse around those issues. So I use my identity in the book as a way of creating more empathy and more opportunity to have insight into what I think is happening in this social phenomenon.
1: And it's interesting, too, because, of course, the goats, uh, when they can no longer reproduce or produce enough quality milk, they become obsolete but there's in a sense because you mentioned menopause and the book and you know there's there's a sense even now of women that oh, you're in some way obsolete when you hit menopause
0: yeah like there's a way in which what are we going to do with you right like you're just kind of taking up space and you're and i think that the way the lab talks about it with the goats is that um they're very expensive to maintain right and <laughs> they're sort of used to as an extractive resource to get profit eventually by getting them to do this thing to express this protein, but that once they are no longer able to do that, they're too expensive to keep on. And there is this sense sometimes, I think, as a woman in menopause, like, you should just kind of go off and be quiet somewhere and not take the resources. I mean, I just think, I think that that's unfortunate. Um, when I was in Gainesville, Florida, sort of tramping around with the the spider expert, the entomologist Larry Reeves, he at one point looked at a spider and said, "Oh, she's they're sputtering out," meaning she was kind of about to die because she had laid her eggs. And I said, and I thought to myself, "Like, am I sputtering out here?" Like, <laughs> so I mean, I think it gives me also a lot to kind of think about internally as I'm doing my interviews and doing field work.
1: Yeah. And you're careful to explain when there's anthropomorphism and what's the difference between reflecting on these um, issues and, and just being straight anthropomorphic.
0: Good, yeah. So I think part of it is we're trained as critical animal studies scholars or sociologists or anthropologists that anthropomorphism is bad. It's 100% bad, you should never do it. But some people have come around to sort of seeing, we well, you know anthropomorphism in another way is also just us trying to be empathetic, trying to use our own lived experience to connect with other animals. And yes, of course, to say that the lion is out there trying to be sexy for the lioness, that's like a little bit over too much heteronormative specifying, I think. But I think to kind of see that there's something kindred I have with female animals whose reproductive capacities is what makes them useful. And they're milking and being milked. And anybody who's ever pumped breast milk and watched an animal have to be hooked up to a machine, there's a natural empathy you feel with these animals being mechanically milked.
1: Yeah, and, and just because the animal doesn't reflect on it the same way we do doesn't mean there's something in our experience that isn't shared.
0: Mm-hmm. Exactly, right, precisely. Yeah.
1: So, uh, you know, stay on the topic of milking, uh, you note in the book that humans and goats have long been intertwined for human and extractive purposes, and milk is one of them. And, you know, certainly there are other animals that we domesticate and use for extractive purposes. So I'm wondering, what is it about transgenic goat milk production that takes a sort of quantum leap from domestic goat milk production or even domestic cow milk production?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think this is a really interesting question, something I found so fascinating by being in the lab and just witnessing the way the milk is collected. So basically... After a cow, I'm sorry, after a goat has given birth, the need to collect that milk, especially if it's a transgenic goat, is paramount. So much so that the kids have to be taken away from the nanny goat immediately. And in the taking away, that milk is then collected and frozen and brought to a lab. Non transgenic goats are also milked, and that milk is then goes to feed the kids that need milk, and those kids are then typed to see if they are indeed transgenic or not. So there's constant codification and counting and tech typing of all these animals to figure out which category they're going to fit in. Once the milk is then collected, it's from the freezer, it's taken to the lab, and it's put through multiple systems of purification. It's defatted, it goes through many different milk runs of purification to get it down to the powder that is going to be used to synthesize and to do prototypes of products that could potentially be useful for humans. The problem with this is that the goat milk itself, we're not problem, but the interesting thing is the goat milk itself then becomes garbage. It becomes something that we don't want. It's the messy container that has the prize in it, which is the spider silk. So. The difference is that when we scale up production of domesticated milk, we want to get as much milk as possible and give hormones to the animals or do things to make them get more and more milk for us, because we're going to consume the milk. In this case, the milk is sort of just the vehicle that has to be stripped away. It's the garbage. It's the pollution to get to the spider silk protein.
1: So there's some uh, real technical distinctions there, and I'm still wondering about if there's an ethical distinction and certainly the question of ethics arises for you in the book and it also arises for the reader. Um, But you don't so much take a stand on it as work through it and you allow the reader to come to their own conclusions. But still I wonder, um, Lisa Jean, I know this is a big question, but could you sum up your thoughts on the ethics of the creation and the maintenance and the ultimate disposal of the spider goats?
0: Yeah. I mean, again, I think as of my particular vantage point, I sometimes have a hard time having a hard line position on the ethics of whether or not the spider goats should exist, should have been created, and should be disposed of. And part of that is because they have existed for 30 years. So there's something where they preceded me into my consciousness of them. And I can't just walk in and say, wow, this is a mistake. We should never have done this They're here, So we have to figure out how do we then manage them. Then with respect to the way they're maintained, when I think of the grand continuum of how we take care of or don't domesticated animals, these goats are extremely well cared for. The scientists, I believe, do have deep relationships with these goats the goats matter to the scientists. They go to great lengths to care for them, to give them veterinary care, to feed them well, to let them have treats. And they are extremely friendly and sweet animals when you go to see them. And they have companionship with other animals. So yes, it's not an ideal situation. It's probably not the best in all the ways goats can be raised and exist, but it's certainly not the worst. And I think it's interesting where we make the cuts, where we decide something is ethical and unethical. And I'm just suspicious of that as a sort of wholesale kind of absolute rigid positionality. And I I worry about that, especially as someone who, in my personal life, with my relationship to my own children, there are ethical choices that people think I should or shouldn't have made. And they have a very rigid stance with respect to that. So I I sort of shudder or back away from that and try and have to think a little more deeply. With respect to the ultimate disposal of the animals, when the animals start to be useful, I wonder, does that mean that the species itself goes extinct? And what does it mean to bring a species into existence, have it exist for 30 plus years, and then create the termination of the species? I'm still, the jury for me is still out. I'm still trying to get my mind around what that means. But there is something also about the goats themselves failing and becoming obsolete and the U.S. Department of Agriculture not wanting the goats to be mainstreamed into the remaining goat herds that exist because they don't want transgenic goats out with other, other goats and reproducing. So I think... I personally can't have a hard stance. I'd rather kind of have a stance of questioning and thinking about things as contextual and contingent and situational rather than absolute.
1: Yeah. So, so maintenance is good. Uh, they're, they're well maintained. And I guess it, it comes down to the question of, um, and I'm not saying for you, but I'm saying for other people contemplating it. Because there's there's so much ethical, I don't know, sort of emotionality about creation of life. Um,
0: right, right. I mean, I think. I mean, the thing interesting thing is also this issue around like purebred dogs, which gets brought up a lot in the text by some of the scientists themselves, where they know that they are people who feel the work they're doing is God's work, and that they're messing with the gene, and and these are people who would have an English bulldog, or people who perhaps don't realize the way the seed has already been genetically modified or that breeding is a form of genetic modification right that there are there are different degrees of these things going on all the time and i think it's important to try and educate ourselves as much as possible about where these animals come from what are the ways these animals are deployed for me the military angle is where my where my
1: spidey sense is. Well, let's talk about the military angle, because um, I know from other things I've worked on that the U.S. military has been involved in funding some quite surprising projects, and this is certainly one of them. Uh, and in that vein, you mentioned a company called Active Violence Solutions that is a really Orwellian name, which provides an extensive list of people who could benefit from better bulletproof wear. And then that becomes part of a reflection that you offer on how we go as a society to these extraordinary lengths to make ourselves safer in various ways. So could you explain how s- spider silk production can be seen as part of a desire to protect ourselves?
0: Yeah, sure. So. As I talk about in the book and has continued since the book has come out, my youngest daughter and also my older daughter's had this happen too, have active shooter drills. We I live in New York City and they go to public schools in New York City and they have active shooter drills where they have to barricade themselves and go in the corner and I'm sure other parents listening to this have had the same experience. And just hearing about all these mass shootings and the prevalence of guns, and we're now in the middle of a war, or perhaps there's other wars going on, the most prevalent right now is the Ukraine war, where humans are constantly under threat that they will get shot, that there are guns available, that this is possible. And when you send your kid off to a civilian school, maybe they will get shot while they're there, and so we have to protect ourselves. The security industry knows this and does a brisk trade in trying to protect us. And one of the ways to protect us is through developing something better than Kevlar, which is what spider silk has been touted to be, that it's stronger than Kevlar, that we could wear pants made of spider silk and a jacket made of spider silk and those bullets wouldn't penetrate us. And so... I sort of wonder, you know, what is going on there? Are we just in this arms race to figure out better ways to kill each other and then better ways to protect each other? And that spider silk sort of was able to get so much funding from the U.S. Department of the military or branches of the military because of these promises of it being able to protect us and our fragile skin and the ways in which we have made weapons of, piercing that skin. So in the book, I talk a lot about how it is that spider silk captures the public imaginary of being ultimately protected. The thing that's interesting is that these things have not yet been scaled up, meaning made to be mass produced or come to market. There are some prototypes. Stella McCartney, who's a fashion designer, has made some things out of spider silk. There was some version of Bulletproof wear made from spider silk. But interestingly, spider silk is also prototypes within biomedical um, applications whereby we could have uh, inserts in our gums for different types of jaw replacement. We could have knee replacement. We could have better adhesives and wound care because it's antimicrobial and also our bodies don't reject spider silk because of the qualities of spider silk and how it works within the human form. So there's All these applications. And interestingly, there's also an application for beauty products whereby you can have spider silk face cream or spider silk shampoo. And there is a level of gimmickness, right, with respect to some of these things. Just as, like, I think many things within the beauty and cosmetics industry is kind of gimmicky. But part of what's interesting to me is this is all about improving and building upon humans' fragility and humans' vulnerability to being wrinkles or bullets or wearing out your knee from just aging. And that spider silk could be a solution in all of these places where humans are fragile creatures.
1: That really makes me think, and I, you know, I, I love what you said about this being something to protect us in our, our fragile skin. And we've made these weapons to, to penetrate or to pierce that skin and... Um, that's true when you think of so many of the uses that we uh, well extractive uses that we have of animals is actually to either improve our health or optimize our health or protect us against disease or decay I
0: I think I just would want to add like I think the thing that's interesting is through biomimicry and looking at what animals do humans think well if they can do that we can do it too we just have to kind of it like figure out how to fly or figure out but what's come now is well, why don't we just take it from the animals and why don't we use one animal to make it for, from another animal cuz that animal's not going to give us enough so it's it's sort of at another order right it's it's not just admiring the animals and trying to get inspiration from them it's actually modifying the animals to give us enough of their raw materials so that we can be like them
1: of what they got or combining the two <laughs> Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah i was just thinking of that that um ephemeral shark cartilage craze where it was there was that book sharks don't get cancer i don't know right. if you
0: no, remember I do. My that dad, my dad talked to me a lot about shark cartilage oh, right and it's just so interesting right like how there's these trends too where there's a fad of what animal is going to be the salvation of whatever ails the human
1: yeah yeah well we haven't hit the uh I don't know, the Holy Grail yet. Um, so, well, that brings me to, as I mentioned earlier, you've written some other books with fascinating titles that also explore interspecies relationships um, in which the other species is used to produce something of value for humans. And I wonder did you find something about the transgenic nature of the spider goats that makes them stand out in the body of that work you've done?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think some of my other work on animals is really very formally lodged within the Anthropocene, which is the time that we're in, the geologic time of the mass die-off of species. And in this mass extinction event, uh, many would blame human and human technology for this, low carbon and the ways in which humans have produced uh, earth that's no longer sustainable for animals. And so, when I've written other books, it's about the threat through colony collapse disorder from honeybees or the redesignation of horseshoe crabs from least threatened to a vulnerable species on its way to being an endangered species. And I'm interested in how humans use these animals to make human life better through pollination or biomedical intervention at the time that those species are starting to decline, in some argument, very much because of human enacted life. What's interesting to me about the spider goat is that the spider goat is something that we're wholly inventing, right? And the species of spider goat, if we can call it that, has a kind of expiry date based on how long it's useful to us. But it's not really connected with the Anthropocene. It's sort of like a different thing. We're not looking at naturally occurring animals and saying, oh, let's this, this is going bad for them. Oh, we need to figure out ways to sort of help them. Humans made it bad, but humans can figure it out. This is sort of different, where we're saying, well, let's let's make this animal, this new animal that can do this stuff for us, and we'll make it, we'll keep it as long as it's useful for us, and then we can discard it. And there's something maybe, perhaps not quite so grievable about that, right? Maybe because it was sort of fabricated, it kind of changes the meaning of what that animal is. So spider goats are interesting to me because I wonder what is the emotional, affective responsibility to an animal, and is it less sad for them to go extinct than for honeybees to go extinct, for instance? And is this a way – I mean, it starts to feel a little like Jurassic Park, right? Like are we just going to have animals now that we genetically produce or splice or transgenically – create a new version of and those will be the new animals that will have because the animals that naturally occur can no longer live in the world that we've modified.
1: As I'm thinking about the Jurassic Park image and um yeah and I, I think we don't know certainly I don't know to what extent that sort of um Genetic manipulation or cloning takes place in various contexts, you know, like when you're trying to preserve, uh, rare animals in zoos and the sort of, I don't think it's necessarily natural reproduction that takes place there, although I'm not sure. Um, I know there's arguments in, for instance, the thoroughbred racehorse breeding industry about whether you can use artificial insemination or has to be what they call a natural cover, Mm-hmm. Um, I know I, I heard an arguments because I used to be involved in the thoroughbred breeding industry and, and uh, there was an argument that somebody uh, within the breeding community made that you you can't have a good resource unless you have the vigor of a natural cover. So th- that's you know sort of the ways that people
0: right. And I think some of these are some of these are scientifically provable, right? And some of these are stories we tell ourselves. And because we've told ourselves the story so long, then the way we see, our our imaginations are mediated by the stories, too. And I think that's what's so interesting about doing interspecies work or being a social scientist, looking at scientists, is that I'm both interested in the science and the actual pragmatic, repetitive lab work, but I'm interested in how we talk about it and how it feels and how it looks and what... What are the ways we have a real emotional relationship to these animals or to the procedures of making them or killing them or letting them live or having them die? And that's that's what's really interesting to me is we're at a time right now of such grief around animals and species die off. And it feels sometimes like we're desperately trying to to themselves that it's okay right like well we can just make spider goats or we could amplify this other animal and bring them back or we'll just have these we'll have these data banks in Iceland where we can then remake the animal when the conditions become more favorable for them to live yeah uh, but as it
1: turns out the spider goats are already on their way to obsolescence what do you see as the transgenic future
0: so this is really important and good question. Um, And I think um, I've had a little bit of follow-up with the lab in Utah with my key informants, which are the humans. And so basically what's happened is the spider goats, because there isn't a lot of interbreeding, they're kind of breeding with themselves and there isn't a lot of genetic diversity, their capacity to reproduce the kinds of numbers of grams of the spider silk protein has declined pretty steadily and they become too expensive to maintain and other systems which are also synthesizing spider silk protein, silkworms, alfalfa, E. coli are becoming cheaper and also more successful. So there's a herd of goats that exists that are no longer useful and What is interesting is these goats have now been taken in by another lab to become basically useful reproducers for babies, so kids, that have heart problems for those goats to be used in research. So they've sort of been decommissioned as spider goats and repurposed as goats to be used within biomedical research for heart surgery. So that's what's happened to the goat. There is also something that's happened in the spider silk lab where the spider silk researchers are starting to use hagfish, which are really strange looking animals if you look online and figure out how hagfish as a defense mechanism when they are being chased in the wild or have a predator, they release a very sticky substance that can have qualities similar to to spider silk. They're figuring out ways to synthesize the hagfish slime, for lack of a better word, to begin to build on the research from the spider silk lab towards now applying it to hagfish. And this is all very bizarre as I spent all these years studying the spider silk to see that they were the spiders and the goats. Were foundational to this research, but may end up being a footnote to different research based on different transgenic species or different species altogether that have qualities of what we want for the U S military or the biomedical industrial complex.
1: So hagfish may be the next big thing.
0: Yeah, I think hagfish, they're also talking about these particular types of jellyfish. Um, And I think, Part of what's interesting to me about this is, I mean, just selfishly, I've spent three plus years of my life writing this book and working on this project as a spider goat. So it also feels like, okay, so is this like a history book now? Like, is this something that happened that's now, like, thank God I wrote the book because science has moved on to this new project. But also just what is our responsibility to a species we create? Like, should we keep some spider goats sort of around because we made them and they should exist somewhere, almost like a museum, which does feel a little Jurassic Park-y, I must admit. Or is it that they should die out because they're no longer useful? And again, when I think of what it is to be useful, it really has to do with late capitalism. And to me, that's a little bit scary.
1: Yeah, as as we define animals as useful or not, although, you know, I would wonder with the with the spider goats so if you stop reproducing them you stop breeding them stop letting them breed then you won't have any more and but we'll still have goats and we'll still have golden orb spiders
0: right and we could always we could always whip them up again right (laughs) 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 and these goats were made pre crispr so now it'd be probably even easier to whip them up now so But there's something, I don't know. This is where, again, like, I can't really give you a good answer why. And maybe I should have my PhD taken away from me. But, like, as a mother, as a woman, as someone who just, you know, lives in the world, there's something scary to me about being able to kind of conjure up a transgenic animal for a little while while it's doing something good and then let it die out when it's not. And then, oh, we need it again. Let's book make some of those. I don't know why. There's something about the disposability of that that makes me feel anxious and you know I'd I'd have to spend a little time figuring out what that's about
1: it is weird and as you mentioned I mean this is something also the goat of course it's a mammal and it's friendly and it's cute and we've got these you know the billy goats gruff and various uh, cultural references to it which is different than like I don't have any kind of cultural relationship with the golden orb spider although it's a nice name
0: Right. I think part of it is also that we do have a real bias towards, you know, animals that are like us, social mammals who are cuddly and who we have some mythological relationship to through nursery rhymes, et cetera, et cetera. And so those affinities in some ways help those animals, but then they're always on our radar for modification, right? Like, I don't know. I think you're right. I think there's something about the ways that the goat is already in your imagination and the spider is seen as something that's a pest. Right. So we may have like when I'm writing this book, I didn't really have a lot of people worried about spiders. They were worried about the goats, but spiders had to go through a lot of death to get to the point of being able to be the protein that was used. So so again, it, I think part of what we're kind of coming to is understanding that our, we have a selective speciesism. We have selective ideas of which animals are valuable and which animals can be cast aside.
1: But in terms of what's happening in the lab, there's still transgenic projects going on, is that right?
0: There are still transgenic projects going on. The transgenic goats have been decommissioned. So they are no longer being used as animals that synthesize spider silk protein. The goats have moved on to a different lab where they're being used for other purposes. And I suspect what'll happen is they will die out. I don't have confirmation of this. And, and when they die out, there will be no, no more will be made. And so we're sort of at the end of their story in some ways until maybe we find them useful again for something else. And then maybe we will kind of create them again.
1: So your book has sociological value, but it may have a historical value as well.
0: Yeah, I guess we could can, we can hope for that. <laughs>
1: yeah. Oh, I think some people say, remember, you know, I didn't know there were spider goats. Or remember well, that a you're the spider goat.
0: <laughs>
1: you will be the only person who will have written about them. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we, we've taken up a lot of your time today, Lisa Jean, but I wonder Uh, if you could tell us what you're working on next or what you're working on now.
0: Sure, yeah. So my next project, I take quite a departure. And as I said, I've written books and worked on projects looking at how animals are meaningful. And I'm interested in something called non-human agency. So how animals that aren't human have the capacity to make things happen. Um, So it's sort of like you could think of it vaguely as like your relationship with your companion species, like your dog or your cat there's always a sense that you have the agency in the relationship, but everybody knows when a dog really wants to go for a walk or a cat doesn't want to be pet, they have agency. So I'm interested in that relationship. But now what I'm interested in is non-human non-animal agency so the agency that's in objects and what that means is i'm interested in how the chemical options make things happen so i'm starting a research project and i've just started it doing some preliminary interviews on tugboats in new york city's harbor and how tugboats are a form of an integral form of commerce in New York City and how the regulations and rules and capacities of tugboat boats make or eliminate the possibility for trade within certain locations. So I've started interviewing tugboat operators, I've, I've watched some tugboat operators taking classes and I'm going to be out on the water more and more collecting my data.
1: Wow. Well, that is really different. I have to say, the first thing when you said tugboat, I do have cultural relationship with tugboats, because what was it, Willie the Tugboat or something? There was a book about a tugboat. He had a name and he had a face and I can see him. And he, and he was a he, he was yes, a male. He was a
0: he. Yes, he was a he tugboat and he went all around and he went through cities and then he came back home and it was a really happy story. So yes, there's Tuggy is another little tugboat story. Um, so that's like a golden book about, and we all have those kind of tucked in our memory bank somewhere. So yeah, so that's my new project and yeah, I'm hoping that'll go well. Wow. Okay. Well,
1: so moving on from transgenic, oops, spider goats to tugboats. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and you know the, the horseshoe crabs may come into there as well cause,
0: totally, right, I'm hoping that I'll see some horseshoe crabs as I'm going by on a tugboat
1: <laughs> you probably will, yeah
0: Um. well Lisa Jean,
1: thank you so much for uh, coming here and talking about your book today, um, everybody the book is Our Transgenic Future Spider Goats, Genetic Modification and the Will to Change Nature and it is really a fascinating read and um, this may be your only chance to learn about spider goats.
0: Thank you so much, Rachel. I really appreciate uh, the time we spent together.